Hey folks, it's John coming to you with another episode of From the Head of the Bed, a podcast for the anesthesia community. Today I'm back with Dr. Chuck Biddle, PhD, CRNA, and we sit down to talk about iatrogenic infections related to anesthesia workstation behaviors. Now, I recently traveled down to Virginia Commonwealth University and recorded this and another podcast with Dr. Biddle. And uh, I think this one has uh, some pretty epic implications for us as anesthesia providers. Dr. Biddle talks about the research related to anesthesia providers being implicated in transmitting diseases to our patients. I just want to emphasize here at the start of this episode that this is not just a surgical team problem. This isn't just about reducing surgical side infections. This is an anesthesia team problem. This is a problem of how we interact with our patients in terms of airway management, how we draw up and access medications, how we administer those medications in IV lines and through stopcocks. This is about how we interface with the anesthesia machine, the anesthesia workstation, the anesthesia medication and supply cart. The, the routine flow of providing anesthesia care in the United States, around the world, is a hot spot of disease transmission to patients. We've got to recognize that we are implicated, that we are responsible, that we have a role to play in reducing the risk of spreading diseases to patients who are under our care. So Dr. Biddle and I talk about this. This uh, is a fascinating topic because it has implications for the way that we deliver care and the design of our anesthesia equipment, machines, and, and workspaces. The way that we provide anesthesia may very well be dramatically different in the future because of this very topic, because of the need to reduce the spread of infections to our patients. Uh, Dr. Biddle talks about the design flaws with the anesthesia machine, the fact that you've got to reach behind with your grimy hands and, and grab the entire top of the vaporizer to turn the dial. The corrugated dials on oxygen flow meters and air flow meters and nitrous oxide flow meters, all of those things present exceptional challenges for cleaning and decontamination. Uh, so we talk about ways that the anesthesia machine, the ways that uh, medication administration could be redesigned and rethought of for the future. It's really a, a fascinating talk. I hope that I look back at the end of my career on this podcast episode in 2017 and say the way that we were doing things in 2017 seems so archaic. I hope this is like a pre-Pulse Ox era, that the design of the technology that we're using 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now is so advanced from where we are today that we look at the way that we do practice today and are just beside ourselves at how archaic and how uh, perhaps barbaric it was in terms of the risk that we presented our patients and the risk that we present to ourselves in terms of disease transmission. So Dr. Biddle and I, we talk about that in the show. I hope you enjoy it. I've got a lot of interesting things uh, planned for the coming months for the podcast. So keep checking in, keep staying tuned. And with that, I take it to the podcast. All right. Well, hey, folks, we're back with Dr. Chuck Biddle, who is a full professor of nursing anesthesia at Virginia Commonwealth University and provides anesthesia services as a CRNA at VCU Medical Center. His anesthesia education and master's degree were earned at Old Dominion University, and his PhD in epidemiology is from the University of Missouri. Dr. Biddle oversees the research efforts of the Department of Nurse Anesthesia at VCU, and he has served continuously as the editor-in-chief of the AANA Journal for over 25 years. 
we just wrapped up a podcast with Dr. Biddle about at-home cardiorespiratory events after discharge from ambulatory surgery. And now I've got the privilege of chatting with him about infectious iatrogenesis associated with anesthesia workstation behavior. And uh, Dr. Biddle has made one condition again um, to have this interview with him, and that's that I call him Chuck. So, Chuck, thank you so much for sitting down with me today to chat about these topics. You're most welcome. So, you've published a number of articles on this topic, um, and you've referred to a physician from, I believe, the when, when was Simmelwise around? And, and am I pronouncing that correctly? <laughs> yes. Remind me. He was involved uh, in the mid to late eighteen um, hundreds. Eighteen hundreds. That's what I thought. Yeah. So remind us, who is Simon Wise, and, and, and why would he be upset at the current state of affairs in, in U.S. And, and, in fact, international health care concerning hand washing and, and the spread of disease? Yeah, I think Semmelweis would be uh, horrified at uh, the current state. Semmelweis was, a, um, was an obstetrician uh, who first suggested that the care providers cleanse their hands when moving from one patient to another. In fact, in Semmelweis's time, he was an obstetrician, um, the risk of uh, puperal fever, childbirth fever, and death from that was greatly accentuated in the hospital setting versus uh, a woman that delivered her child at home. So he predates germ theory as we know it. He predates uh, uh, Pasteur, uh, Lister, uh, Koch. He knew that there was something going on, and it had to have been transferred from one patient to another or one place to a patient uh, at the hands of the provider. Um, the sorry story is that Semmelweis was um, branded a lunatic because the idea that a physician could cause disease was abhorrent to his colleagues. He was labeled a lunatic eventually uh, was beaten to death in prison by wow. a prison guard. So this, 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 this man that was prescient, decades ahead of his time, uh, suffered, <laughs> suffered for, uh, for trying to keep this problem from, um, from occurring. So uh, his, you know, I think that we should all become a little bit more like Semmelweis, perhaps a little bit more lunatic about uh, uh, or a little bit more uh, maniacal about uh, right. hand hygiene. Right, right. Well, your article in, in the journal, uh, the AANA journal in 2009, was titled Simulwise Revisited Hand Hygiene and Nosocomial Disease Transmission in the Anesthesia Workstation. And you have since continued to publish on this topic. Um, so in this 2009 article, I would like to ask you about this. You dedicated this article to your father. Yes. Who, in the article, you stated that he died from a hospital-acquired infection in 1991. Yes. Will you tell us a little bit about that event and how that has shaped your career and your interest in, in patient safety? Yeah. Uh, the, the interesting thing about that was that my father had had um, uh, fairly routine surgery, and uh, I went to visit him, and um, he was doing fine. And uh, not 24 hours later, he was still in the hospital and had been started on a course of uh, chemotherapy, which clearly bumped his immune system. Uh, a patient had been uh, admitted in the adjoining hospital room, not his hospital room, in the adjoining hospital room in a listeria infection. She had a listeria sepsis. And my father 
ended up somehow uh, getting that very bug, listeria, hmm. and he succumbed in about 10 or 12 hours. Wow. Um, I remember getting the call from my mom saying, uh, hey, you need to get here, get back here because your, your dad is dying. And I said, my goodness, they, you know, he was, doing, he was doing great. So that kicked into motion a whole series of things um, that I uh, was able to do, probably couldn't do now uh, because it was a much more relaxed atmosphere. This was pre, pre-HIPAA. Mm. And, uh, you know, being the kind of closet uh, epidemiologist, I began to look at what was going on in, in, my, in, in uh, the vicinity of my, uh, my, my dad's care. It was probably uh, transferred from that patient in the adjoining uh, room by the nursing staff or the custodial staff or the uh, nutrition staff. Mm. And that organism somehow jumped over and it, may, and it was, it, 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 it crystallized for me the understanding that perhaps the most dangerous thing in the hospital are not the drugs, are not the, uh, the procedures, are not the environment, but the most dangerous things in the hospital are our hands. Mm. Um, some listeners may think I'm overstating that, but, but I believe that to this day. And in fact, the research that I have read by people who I deeply admire, and those are investigators like Randy Loftus, Michael Koff, uh, who are at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, as well as research that um, uh, I've been involved in personally, everything reinforces my view, my perception, that the most dangerous thing in the hospitals are the provider's hands. Mm. They are the vectors most frequently of the transmission of one organism from a surface to a patient or from a patient to another patient or a patient back to ourselves or for ourselves to a patient. So uh, I would ask listeners to have an open mind about just what the potential lies in your hands every day you're taking care of a patient. Wow. Well, I am I'm sorry to hear uh, about that story, and I was, um, I think, taken aback when I read that. So I can. Um, well, thank you. Certainly understand how that can be a motivating. Uh, were, were you in the study of epidemiology at that time? I had just completed my degree at the University oh, wow. of Missouri in 1991. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And the body of literature, as you just said, is is resoundingly supportive of the fact that hands are um, incredible vectors of disease. Yes. And that and that something as simple as hand washing um, can have a profound effect on reducing the spread of infectious organisms. Yes. So just to be clear, uh, let's get this out there. How, what are the effective ways? Uh, it, when, when should people wash their hands? How should they wash mm-hmm. their hands? I mean, this is simple. Our listeners should know this very well. But as we will get to, uh, healthcare providers, highly educated healthcare providers, uh, are in fact quite poor at washing their hands. So... Uh, let's start with the basics. Yeah, the, the basics I think default immediately to the WHO uh, recommendations for hand hygiene, and there are five crucial uh, moments for hand hygiene. And uh, your readers can uh, simply Google WHO five uh, hand hygiene moments. Uh, the, the the problem is, in some ways, uh, and despite being an advocate for hand washing, uh, it's going to sound like I'm I'm, I'm deliberately confusing things, but um, 
it's almost insurmountable. It's almost impossible. In fact, I would argue that it is uh, quite nearly impossible for an anesthesia provider to engage um, with consistency those five uh, WHO hand hygiene moments. Were we to do that, uh, it would literally um, consume the entire time that we were caring for a patient because you think about just how active our hands are, the job that we are doing, uh, it's, 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 a ve- it's a very difficult thing. Um, and, and something that you've actually, I mean, you've actually studied. One of, one yes. of your articles that looked at uh, the, you had, uh, this is quantification of anesthesia providers' hand hygiene in a busy metropolitan operating room, what would Samovis think? And, and in this study, you had secret observers paying attention to the anesthesia providers. Is that right? Yeah. This was not the... Uh, the condition uh, that probably some of the listeners have been involved in where you have the person, you know, in the white coat and the tie sitting in the corner pecking at a computer as they're watching you. These were Confederates in the operating room I placed. Um, This was not an easy thing to get past um, the IRB. And in some ways, uh, I've been accused of being uh, uh, a spy. And in fact, that's exactly what we did. We had uh, Confederates in the operating room. These were people ostensibly who were training to become circulating nurses. Right. And what they were doing was not training to become circulating nurses at all. They were watching the anesthesia providers from the time that they first encountered the patient in the morning of surgery or the the first opportunity to encounter the patient in the preoperative holding area and followed uh, that anesthesia provider observing their behaviors until the patient was discharged to the care of the PACU nurse. Right. Over the course of this um, aggressive study, we observed some pretty um, uh, negligent behaviors in terms of hand hygiene. Yeah. And to your point, saying the difficulty of compliance with hand hygiene, and, and, I, and I would like to go back to the, uh, the WHO guidelines, World Health Organization guidelines of when and how to wash hands. But in, in this particular study, you talked about uh, there were on average 34 to 41 times per hour that an anesthesia provider should, based upon the guidelines, mm. wash their hands. Yeah. And how challenging that would be yeah. if one were to comply uh, to the letter of that recommendation with hand hygiene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in fact, those are fairly uh, conservative measures. There are other studies um, that have been done that have used sophisticated videotaping that have shown the rate of hand hygiene, what are known as hand hygiene moments or hand hygiene opportunities, are far in excess of those numbers. So on average, we saw about 30 to 40 hand hygiene moments or opportunities that occurred in the average case. That said, there were certain phases of care, and I think that the your listeners may uh, may be very thoughtful about this. There are certain phases of care, especially during induction and emergence, where opportunities for um, hand hygiene, based on those WHO uh, recommendations, can number into of the hundreds. Right. And I'm not, I'm not dramatizing that, or it's not hyperbole. There is systematic research that has that has shown this. This same. Um, these same hand hygiene complexities and demands 
occur throughout the hospital. And the intensive care unit is, is a very good example of this. So a lot of the lessons that we've imported into our hand hygiene education not only come from the operating room, but also from the critical care and emergency department domains as well. So, so when should we wash our hands? Well, you should certainly enter into any kind of patient care intervention uh, with clean hands. And one of the things uh, I've been asked, asked many times, especially by students and colleagues, is, you know, was it enough to put gloves on? And I said, well, that, that all depends on how clean your hands are when you put gloves on. Most of us, when we put gloves on, retrieve a glove from a box. Right. If our hands are soiled and we reach into a box of gloves, the glove is soiled. Mm-hmm. The box is soiled. Um, so right from the get-go, and there's, again, very elegant research, not research that I have done, but research that, for instance, uh, Matthew Koff, Randy Loftus uh, has have done. Uh, readers can, can search for Loftus, L-O-F-T-U-S, and Matthew Koff, K-O-F-F. Their research is overwhelmingly convincing that we bring to the patient uh, not only Enterobacter, but many other species of bacteria on our hands. There is a cultural divide, I would argue, between what happens south of the drape and north of the surgical drape. Uh, There's a whole culture of sterility uh, that, that occurs on the surgical side of the drape that seems to be forgotten or neglected on the anesthesia side. So coming to the uh, patient intervention with clean hands is one thing. Executing it in a, uh, a very careful manner, immediately cleaning your hands uh, and any equipment that, that, you've, that you've used, ridding yourself of uh, the gloves or any microbes that you may have picked up when performing that task, and then making sure that you then re-clean <laughs> so that you're ready for... Um, the next intervention with the patient, literally, it, it would be a continuous cycle of cleaning, disinfecting, um, getting rid of gloves, and um, it's almost insurmountable. In fact, in that same paper, I brought up the issue, uh, and I'm not the first person, by the way. I'm not claiming uh, to be the, the thoughtful person um, or the person who first came up with this, but one of the most dangerous things uh, that we do on a routine basis is access the stopcock of the patient. Right. And again, investigators at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center have uh, done a very sophisticated study of how frequently the stopcock becomes contaminated with organisms from the patient's oral cavity, uh, from their skin, and from the anesthesia equipment that we use, including the anesthesia machine. Once you contaminate the stopcock, you have a direct portal for administering or injecting or exposing the patient's vascular system to bacteria, much of that bacteria being pathogenic. Yeah. Now, the only research that has been done to date looking at uh, microbial contamination of the stopcock has been in the realm of uh, bacterial species. But I would add to that that uh, if we're putting bacteria there, if there's a risk of bacteria, there's also a risk for fungi, mm-hmm. and there's a risk for viruses. So the weakest link here, besides our hands, is the way that we administer drugs intravenously to patients. And there is research that's ongoing 
in many different places now looking at redesigning uh, the stopcock and uh, coming up with novel ways of administering drugs uh, to patients. Right. Before we just throw up our hands in the air and say there's nothing to do, let's <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit more of the, about the problem. So, yeah. talk about the, the anesthesia workstation at large in yeah. some of your work at looking at uh, the ways that anesthesia providers contaminate the anesthesia workstation, workstation contamination between cases. Oh. Uh, talk a little bit about some of those things. Yeah, work that was uh, inspirational to me, uh, not only by uh, the folks I've already mentioned, uh, Matt Koff and uh, Randy Loftus, um, but there is another uh, investigator uh, the readers may want to look at. Uh, her work is uh, Sylvia Monroe's Price, and um, she went so far, has gone so far in the literature to describe our anesthesia workstation as a fecal patina. Mm. And some, <laughs> some listeners may uh, find that rather abhorrent, but I would say that what she has done in her work that has been validated in the work of others is that there are many species of pathogenic organisms that reside on our anesthesia equipment. And one of the reasons for that is that it's very difficult to clean our anesthesia equipment. The anesthesia machine in particular is nearly impossible to disinfect. In fact, if you look at, uh, and I would ask listeners uh, to observe the way they clean uh, their anesthesia equipment, including the machine or um, their anesthesia techs or their custodial uh, folks, how those devices are, are, are cleaned. We have done rather extensive research showing that uh, it's very easy to contaminate these surfaces and nearly impossible to clean them. Uh, we've tried everything from, uh, and, and listeners may may find some of these devices being used uh, in their hospitals, different kinds of sprays, different kinds of immersion techniques, different types of wipes, also robots that are brought into the room with Seaway uh, bandlift light that will kill anything with a carbon uh, structure, any sort of organic material. But of course, light and these sprays and wipe downs don't get to all surfaces. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think about your vaporizer dial, for instance, you know, to turn on your sevofluorine vaporizer requires you to reach behind it and turn your flow meters, you know, your APL valve. We've identified um, a number of what we call hot spots on the anesthesia machine that are not only difficult to clean, but are routinely contaminated by the patient that is in the room currently and how that that anything that is uh, currently on the machine, any sort of biofilm community that is on the machine can then get transferred to the next patient unless that biofilm community has been removed. And that's not an easy thing to do. Chuck, this all sounds terrible. <laughs> what, I mean, what, do, what do we do? How is, how is this information, uh, how is this practically shaped? Yeah. Like, take, take me into a Chuck Biddle anesthetic. <laughs> Do you yeah. bathe your hands continuously in, in alcohol solution? I mean, what, what are some practical things that we can do to reduce the risk of spreading infection to our patients? You know, I, I wish I had um, more answers and not so many uh, criticisms and questions. And um, this is what is leading us into uh, looking at 
in a more systematic way what we can do about this. I, I do think that having an awareness of the extent of the problem, and there is a rich literature now, by the way, that has shows in a kind of CSI, you know, a crime scene investigation kind of methodology that shows that uh, surgical site infection, and I would look at, when I look at uh, morbidity associated with uh, the kind of iatrogenesis that we're talking about now, infectious disease, iatrogenesis, the transfer of one organism from a surface to a patient or from one patient to another or from ourselves to a patient or vice versa, bringing it back to us, I'm thinking of the following. I'm thinking of surgical site infection. I'm thinking of bloodstream septicemia. And I'm thinking of iatrogenic pneumonia. Those are the three uh, things. Now, there are other things as well. Uh, you might look at something like uh, urinary tract infection, but the top three um, things that I think should be on our radar is our contribution to surgical site infection, ventilator or otherwise uh, iatrogenic uh, pneumonia and bloodstream infection. I have argued, and I use that in, in, in terms of the, um, the systematic way that I would see arguing, I have argued that it is impossible. Now, listeners may, may, may find what I'm saying <laughs> over the top, but I would ask them to just pause and be thoughtful about this. I would argue that it is impossible for an anesthesia provider to inject a drug sterilely through a stopcock if they have any other task to do. The only way you can inject a drug sterilely into a stopcock is A, ensure that from the get-go the stopcock is sterile. Then you have to be gowned, gloved, masked sterilely. And then you have to access the drug in a sterile manner. And then you have to inject the drug in a sterile manner. And the only way to do that, the only way to do that is to do that in a laminar hood, hmm. and that's the only job that you have. Now, I don't know of any anesthesia providers that I've ever met whose sole job was to inject drugs. We're usually multitasking. I would guess that from time to time that if the listeners are thoughtful about their practice, they will find that they don't always access the stopcock in a sterile manner. If you think about how a drug is administered to a patient, it's sometimes administered in a somewhat haphazard way. Mm. Uh, the design of the stopcock is terrible, the current design of the stopcock. So there are people that are beginning to look at this problem, the ergonomics of injecting drugs, but at best, um, at best, we are not injecting drugs sterilely in patients. It's impossible to do. Yet that's the assumption. That's the assumption. I mean, I mean that's the assumption by governing bodies. Mm -hmm. But you've got clean gloves on. You've got clean gloves. Clean, not sterile. The IV tubing is anything but sterile since it was opened. It's been draped all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, so clean gloves, scrubbing mm -hmm. with alcohol for mm -hmm. 30 seconds. I mean, it was. You mean the stopcock? Scrubbing the stopcock with alcohol. Yeah, I mean, well, the trouble, depending on how your stopcock looks, you can't get intraluminal with your. Right. <laughs> so if the lumen of the internal lumen of the stopcock has been contaminated, 
that's very difficult to clean with an alcohol swab. Right. Now there are, uh, and we're seeing these increasingly, in fact we're using them in our facility now, we are using little caps on our stopcocks that allow uh, them to be scrubbed. But I will also say that there is really elegant, simple, kind of Occam's razor uh, type research that has been done that shows that in order to properly sterilize, and that may be a, a, an overstatement, even a, a latex-covered stopcock, you have to scrub it mm-hmm. with an alcohol wipe in excess of 10 seconds. Now, I don't know of anybody that's doing that routinely for every injection into a stopcock. At best, most folks are swiping it, uh, but that research is published and it's out there. So uh, once again, a, this is a very, very challenging area. Yeah. So for stopcocks, there are the caps, yes. typically chlorhexidine impregnated. Yes. And you're, you're using those at your facility. We are. Standard. Standard, well, when I say standard, I would say that they are available. Okay. Now, whether or not all practitioners are availing themselves of that. Um, there it's, are, it's a policy, though? It's not a policy. Yeah. It's not a policy. Where I work, it is a policy to cover all stopcocks mm-hmm. if they're on any line, peripheral mm-hmm. or central, if there is a central line in place. A central line in place, yes. Things get ramped up when you have a patient with a central line, but it is not, I, I still believe that across the board, it's not a consistent policy to use those kinds of devices on stopcocks, mm-hmm. at least not in the facilities that I'm familiar with. But it could be helpful. I imagine that any thought that is put towards the idea of reducing the risk of contamination, such as with one of these uh, devices, might be helpful, yes. What other things can we do when faced with any yeah. opportunities to wash our hands yeah. during an anesthetic, when yeah. faced with an anesthesia machine that is routinely contaminated with biofilms, yeah. what are some practical things that we can do? Yeah. The practical things, I think, are, uh, you know, when possible, to clean your anesthesia machine with a wipe, give it a, give it a wipe down. Uh, one of my great concerns is, uh, and is part of the, the, the condom uh, study we are just now beginning to initiate, is the idea uh, for the last um, eight years or so, we are uh, a facility that uh, does 100% electronic medical record keeping. Mm-hmm. And the keyboard is greatly worrisome to mm-hmm. me. Uh, keys, the keyboard is nearly impossible to disinfect, not sterilize, but disinfect. It's very difficult to clean. There are keyboards uh, that we're not using here that can be totally immersed but, uh, you know, immersion is not a, a simple phenomenon either. I mean, you think about uh, the scopes that you use. You know, those require uh, immersion right. for a significant period of time. So there are areas that are greatly in need of ergonomic redesign. Now, one of the things that we're beginning to talk about with engineers, with bioengineers here at VCU, is increasingly redesigning or, or increasingly being thoughtful about what can we do to redesign the anesthesia machine. Well, one thing I think we can do is we can create uh, flat screens mm-hmm. for things like um, adjusting our gas flows, mm-hmm. for administering vaporous anesthetics, for uh, you know even possibly electronic record keeping where you have a flat screen like an, like an iPad where you would have control over these things, uh, which would be very easy to clean. Uh, There are other uh, things that we're talking about now. We're talking about 
having those of you that have been uh, ever gone into, uh, and I'm not promoting Wawa here, but I remember uh, several years ago, I encountered my very first soft drink dispensing machine in a Wawa gas station food store. Hmm. And I noticed that what was interesting about this is it was a total flat screen. You pick the flavor that you want, you pick uh, the mix that you want, and you press this button. It's a cartridge-driven flat screen, touch screen. Right. There's no ever any sort of hand mixing of anything. So what you can do is take that technology and apply it, for instance, to your Pixis. Now imagine that you had a Pixis at the bedside of every patient, and it was a closed-loop system so that the Pixis, the IV infusion system going to the patient, ran through this Pixis, and you might say, I want to give 75 micrograms of fentanyl. And you would dial up by touch screen, you would dial up fentanyl, just like you might dial up, you know, Coke or 7-Up or whatever on your your wall. And you would then click fentanyl and it would ask you, what dose do you want to give? You say 75 micrograms. And they would ask you, are you sure you want to give 70? You see where I'm going with this. And then eventually you say, yes, administer. And the machine administers entirely closed system. You're not drawing up drugs. You're not injecting drugs de nouveau. It's a closed system. Now, that requires a considerable design of the anesthesia workstation, but it's something that we are beginning to talk about here. At least we're talking about it. Right. I think the most important thing that the listener can do, that we can do as practitioners, is to talk about it. Because there are people out there far smarter than I with greater perspective, novel perspective, that will come up with solutions for this problem that we're right. facing. And to think about things that are far-fetched, futuristic, seemingly impossible, one only needs to back themselves up to the time of Samovise, the time of any any distant point in the history of anesthesia in the past, and look at what may have been, you know, there are careers now, yours in fact, that span before the time of the pulse oximeter, before the time of the entitled CO2 sampling line. There were there were elements of care that we just didn't have available to us. It's at, in the distant past, in in the distant future. What will care look like? When I was a senior in high school, I saw my first cell phone, and it looked like a briefcase. Right. It was a satellite phone, and look where we are now. Um, we will find the, the solutions here. Uh, it's fairly easy for people like me to demonstrate that there's a problem, but I think we have to demonstrate the problem first in order to craft solutions. And there will be a generation, a new generation of anesthesia providers and thinkers and engineers and nurses and doctors, etc., that will find solutions to these problems. That's very fascinating. It reminds me from our previous podcast of uh, I believe it was the quote from one of the fellows that was in one of your articles, uh, Benyumov, where he said, the first step to fixing a problem is identifying yeah. a problem. That's Jonathan Benyumov, who's an anesthesiologist in uh, California. Uh, some of your listeners may recognize Dr. Benyumov as being one of the original architects of the ASA's difficult airway algorithm. Mm-hmm. And he's also written extensively um, thoracic anesthesia chapters and all. But he's been inspirational to me in a lot of ways. And most recently, bringing uh, bringing our attention to just some of the uh, patient safety issues that we that we face daily in in, in our anesthesia care. What other things come to mind um, in closing that 
that are on the horizon in terms of enhancing the safety of the anesthesia uh, workstation in terms of infectious disease? You know, for for many years as a uh, as a practitioner, uh, as a clinician, I was. Uh, uh, some of the value inculcation that I grew up with is that uh, during a busy OR day, as many of your listeners have, uh, are confronted with and increasingly with uh, production pressure, which seems to grow um, and not mitigate, we will often set up for the incoming case during a current case. Mm-hmm. Um, I would ask your listeners to be thoughtful about that. Um, if you are at a restaurant and your, um, your waiter or your waitress is bringing you food, it's unlikely that they are going to bring you know, utensils or food to the table that you are eating at for the next person that's going to be coming. Hmm. I think that you would be horrified to have that happen. And I would say that that is akin to what many of us do now where we are setting up for the next case, sometimes even drawing up drugs with hands that may be contaminated with stuff that's going on with the current patient. Mm -hmm. I would ask folks to be thoughtful about that. Um, I would also ask folks to just be self-aware. I think a lot of this is self-aware that the culture that we live in in anesthesia is different than that of the, the, the surgical side. And, you know, one of the reasons I think um, that this has been the case, uh, at least for the majority of my career, is that infectious disease has largely been off the radar of nurse anesthetists. And I would add to that list a whole bunch of things that are off, generally off of our radar. For instance, um, infectious disease usually doesn't manifest, whether it's pneumonia, sepsis, surgical site infection, for hours to a day or more after we leave the patient's side. Right. I would add to that list like uh, trolley, transfusion-related acute lung disease doesn't manifest for many hours after a blood transfusion, uh, nerve injury, even, even something like postural puncture headache. If these things are too distant from our radar, we feel disconnected and we feel unresponsible hmm. for that. So I think until um, fairly recent research, and I would say that this research has largely occurred within the last you know, eight years, infectious disease, our role as, iatrogen, as iatrogenic uh, vectors for infectious disease, we just never entertained that we had any role in that. Right. Well, increasingly, it's clear that we play a huge role in this. This literature is sound. You know, this is not science fiction. The literature is sound coming from many centers, many different uh, investigators. And I know that the research that we've done here using fluorescent dyes technique, a kind of CSI to watch where your hand goes, we've gone so far as to put a 1.5 cc drop, literally a couple of drops on the tongue of a anesthesia simulating mannequin and then engaging in an anesthetic induction and then tracking where highly qualified, highly experienced anesthesia providers, physicians and nurse anesthetists, tracking where that dye ends up. It ends up all over the anesthesia mm. machine. 
whether they use gloves or not. Now, what we have found is that they use a double gloving technique after airway management. In other words, as soon as the airway management is completed, the outer gloves come off. Right. We have shown a dramatic decrease in the in the in the rate of continuous contamination. But even in those cases, we are seeing contamination of the anesthesia machine. Most often, these hot spots that I'm talking about, the APL valve, the oxygen flow meter, uh, the sevoflurane or desflurane or isoflurane vaporizer, the electronic uh, uh, medical record uh, keyboard, the ventilator control, di- c- control right. dials, whether it's touch screen or dials, these are all hot spots. Um, the anesthesia suction, oh my goodness, we could go on and on about the suction and where the suction often ends up, sometimes tucked under the mattress, sometimes falling to the floor, sometimes laid on the anesthesia uh, workstation tabletop. Uh, we've seen it all. <laughs> all right. Well, it sounds like we have a lot of work to do. It, do. it sounds like we have identified the problem. We've identified the problem, and you're absolutely right. There's much work to be done. And the next thing that we're looking at, and you mentioned it, was the idea of an anesthesia condom, creating a condom for the anesthesia um, machine. We're doing a clinical trial with that right now. Right. Involving uh, microbiology, uh, anesthesia providers, uh, infection control specialists, and uh, anesthesia providers. So that's an exciting uh, area of research that we are engaged in right now. Right. Well, Chuck Biddle. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise on these topics today. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thanks, John.